From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, we talk about a tax case that's made its way to the Supreme Court and the divisive rule called the Bob Richards Rule that became its focus. The case, Rodriguez v. FDIC, is a dispute between parties connected to a parent company and its subsidiary over a tax refund after the parent declared bankruptcy. Bloomberg tax legal reporter Aisha Bogchi has been following the case and joins us to tell us more. So, Aisha, you actually had the chance to sit in on these oral arguments at the Supreme Court. That's right. So, so give us a little background on what's really at the heart of this case. Right. So there are two basic issues going on. One of them is a fight over who gets a tax refund after a parent company declared bankruptcy. The other issue has to do with a rule that was developed in a 1973 case a long time ago. It's used by lower courts sometimes to kind of tip the scales in these fights over who gets the tax refund. Uh, And the Supreme Court took the case to figure out whether it's okay for courts to be applying this rule. There's actually a split among the appellate courts below over whether to apply the rule or not. That rule is called the Bob Richards rule. The Supreme Court is ultimately going to answer this question about whether the parent company or the subsidiary gets this tax refund, and then whether it's appropriate to be using this precedent-y type of rule in uh, these types of cases. So what is this rule? Give us a little background. Yeah, so this rule, it's a federal common law rule, which means that it's a rule that is developed by judges through custom and through precedent. And just for some historical context, the name Bob Richards comes from a car company, the Bob Richards Chrysler Plymouth Corporation, which was a subsidiary to another company and became bankrupt in the 1960s. Some years later, there was actually a decision that came out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. It was a 1973 decision where the court expressed, I think it used language like, we feel that um, the refund in this case should go to the uh, go to the subsidiary. It arose from the losses of the subsidiary and uh, didn't think that there was something else about the case that should make it turn out differently. And uh, that was the decision of the court. And it turned out that it had a life of its own and it's lived on. How it operates, at least according to the petitioner uh, in the case, is it puts a thumb on the scale in favor of a subsidiary when the subsidiary is having a fight with a parent company over who gets a tax refund. This can often happen in bankruptcy, um, say after a parent company declares bankruptcy, as happened in this case. Um, And maybe one of the reasons that the rule was developed is because the tax refund is being generated from the losses that the subsidiary experienced. But the parent and the subsidiary filed a consolidated tax return together. And when that happens, the parent company um, will get the tax refund and it's ultimately owed to the subsidiary. When bankruptcy happens, suddenly we don't know who is really going to get this tax refund. And this rule comes into place when there isn't a clear agreement between the two parties, putting a thumb on the scale in favor of the subsidiary. Ideally, there would be language in the contract between the parent company and subsidiary. But in this case, with United Western Band Corp, that wasn't the case? Well, there was a contract, actually, and the parties disagree about whether the contract was clear. Hmm. Um, And usually when it comes to interpreting a contract, you apply state law. In this case, it would be applying Colorado law, and you try to figure out what the contract says. Um, The issue is if the contract isn't crystal clear on who should get the refund, you know, if there isn't a common law rule to come in to say we should tip the scales one way or the other, 
then a court is just left to interpret the contract, even if it's not crystal clear, and decide um, what it's really saying about who should get the tax refund. But if there's a common law rule, it might come in and say, hey, you know, if the contract isn't clear, you just need to give it to this side. There's a presumption in favor of that side. And so the issue for the court is really whether this rule was developed in a legitimate way, whether judges should be able to kind of develop rules that are tipping scales when they're not really coming from a state legislature or the U.S. legislature. So either side is arguing over the legitimacy of this Bob Richards rule. Is that right? Sort of. I mean, definitely on the petitioner side, uh, they're saying that this is an illegitimate rule in Supreme Court. The reason you need to step in here is you need to tell lower courts that it is time you stopped applying the Bob Richards rule. The other side, um, it's called the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It took over the bank after the bank got into a financial struggle, and the bank was a subsidiary in this case. Uh, It's coming in and saying that the rule wasn't important to deciding this case below, contrary to what the other side is saying, so you really shouldn't address it. We don't want to wade in too much to whether it's a legitimate or an illegitimate rule. We think the other side is misunderstanding the rule, um, but really it's not an issue in this case. You You don't need to be talking about it. So what were the core arguments of each side? On the parent company side, you know, the side of the parent company's bankruptcy estate, you had Mitchell Reich arguing that before the tax refund got handed over to the subsidiary, it really belonged to the parent. So it should end up in the parent company's bankruptcy estate, which doesn't mean the subsidiary won't get anything. The subsidiary will still be a creditor. It'll show up the bankruptcy estate um, and try to vie for this, what the parent company would call a debt that that it's owed, but it would be vying with other creditors there. So you never know whether the subsidiary is going, going to see much of anything. And you know, the parent company side, they were really arguing, too, that the Bob Richards rule should get struck down, that it's a bad rule, that, you know, this idea that uh, a judge-made rule could so easily take on a power of its own to be influencing how these disputes turn out is really inappropriate. And so this is an opportunity for the court to come in, the highest court in the nation, and say, hey, this isn't okay. All the courts below who are applying the rule need to cut it out. On the other side, you've got a lawyer for uh, the government, for the federal agency, the FDIC, that's representing uh, the subsidiary, uh, who came in. His name is Michael Houston. He came in and said, hey, the Bob Richards rule actually wasn't important to deciding this dispute in the first place. If you look at the courts below, the really important thing was just analyzing the contract under Colorado law, which is what the other side wants Um, people to be doing anyway. And the refund always belonged with the subsidiary. He basically said that the parent company was acting as an agent on behalf of the subsidiary. And because of that, the parent company never really owned the refund at all. Um, And he really thought this was kind of like when your coworker sends you to the deli to pick up sandwiches. Here's a clip of Houston presenting that analogy, talking about just that. It's supposed to be easy to create an agency relationship. Think about an example where my coworkers appoint me as their agent to go to the deli and pick up lunch. They say, Michael, you will be our agent. The order at the deli will be placed in your name. Bring us back the sandwiches and bring us back the change, too. When I'm on my way back to the office, if I suddenly declare bankruptcy, everyone understands that the sandwiches and the change are the property of my coworkers. They don't become part of my bankruptcy estate. And it doesn't matter that my colleagues didn't specify, here's the specific route you have to take from the deli back to the office. And it doesn't matter that they didn't specifically say that I was required to keep each of my six colleagues' change in a separate envelope. 
So Houston is really trying to drive home this point that the parent company was the agent acting on behalf of the subsidiary. Was there anything that sort of backed up that claim? Yeah. So, you know, a key point for him is that the contract said this was an agency relationship. And he said, hey, that's good enough. This is common sense. It's like going to the deli. But on the other side, you had Mitchell Reich on the parent company side saying that's not good enough. You really need more to create this kind of agency relationship in which the possession of the refund wouldn't be enough for the parent company to be, to be claiming ownership in this uh, in this instance. And his point is that specifically with agency relationships, at least in the context of this contract in Colorado, uh, the subsidiary needed to be able to exercise some control over the parent company, more than was happening in the case. Here's a clip of him talking about just that. To establish an agency under the common law, the, the subsidiary would at least need to reserve the rights to direct how the subsidiary fills out, how the parent fills out, fulfills that task, either by having authority to direct it to seek the refund in the first place or direct how it handles the refund once it's received. That was Reich saying that you really needed to have more control coming from the subsidiary over the parent to have an agency relationship. But he also made the point to the justices that even though it's you know harder in his mind than the FDIC thinks to create an agency relationship, it doesn't mean it's hard to create an agreement in which uh, the subsidiary is going to end up the refund and it won't head to the parent's bankruptcy estate. He just thinks you got to use a different pathway and it has to do with developing a trust relationship. Um, here he is talking about that. And this doesn't mean it's hard in any way to assign a refund to the subsidiary. The easiest way to do so is in the government's, uh, in the banking regulator's guidance, the 2014 addendum to their policy statements, which is cited on page 9 of the government's brief. It provides model language that parties can use to achieve the result it's advocating here, which establishes a trust relationship, which is very easy to establish under state law, requires nothing more than designating someone a trustee and requiring funds to be held uh, to, to, to be clearly set aside for the subsidiary. Reich is making his point by really driving the facts of the relationship between the parent and the subsidiary. So how are the justices balancing the issues? What was kind of funny is the justices didn't seem that concerned at all about this nitty-gritty dispute over who should get the tax refund and working through all the details of the contract. They spent most of their time talking about the Bob Richards rule. In fact, Justice Gorsuch said that pretty clearly. You know, he didn't even really care who gets the tax refund. He thought the court was here to decide the Bob Richards rule and handle a split between the lower courts. Here's a clip of him talking about that. Who cares about the refund in this case? All right. I know you guys care terribly about it. I know your colleagues on the other side care terribly about it. But the Supreme Court of the United States is here to resolve circuit splits on questions of law. We took this to decide the Bob Richards rule, whether it's a thing. So it's really interesting that Gorsuch is acknowledging that the reason why the Supreme Court is taking this up is to decide whether this Bob Richards rule is legitimate or not. So so why is the Supreme Court handling this question in the first place? Yeah, it's kind of Gorsuch's key point. He thinks the Supreme Court is here in large measure to handle splits between um, circuit courts of appeals below to make sure that there's uniformity in the law being applied in the lower courts. And he was seeing a division, as the justices were when they saw the petition to the Supreme Court to take the case, on this issue about whether the Bob Richards rule is a thing, whether it's legitimate. It turned out actually to be kind of tricky figuring out what the Bob Richards rule 
really means. At least the two parties weren't agreeing on what the rule was, which seemed to kind of frustrate the justices. On the one hand, you had Mitchell Reich on the parent side saying what the justices thought the rule meant when they took the case, that this is a rule that puts a thumb on the scale in favor of the subsidiary when there isn't a clear agreement about who should get the tax refund. It was developed by judges and became a federal common law rule that is that is putting the thumb on the scale and Mitchell Reich said it shouldn't be. He also said that the FDIC on the subsidiary side agreed that that's what the rule meant when it was um, arguing the case in the courts below. He seemed to be thinking that the FDIC had changed its position when it got to the Supreme Court. Here he is talking about that. In the lower courts, the FDIC advocated a rule of federal common law known as the Bob Richards rule, which holds that ownership of a tax refund presumptively resides with the subsidiary whose losses gave rise to that refund. That's the rule the FDIC has advocated for decades, and that's the rule the Tenth Circuit applied below. So that was Reich saying to the justices that the rule that I presented to you about putting a thumb on the scale in favor of the subsidiary is the rule that was applied in the courts below. It's the rule that uh, you should be addressing in the case. On the other hand, you had Michael Houston on the FDIC's side saying that wasn't what the Bob Richards rule means, at least as it's been used in this case. Your Honor, we think that Bob Richards, as the case describes on its facts and as the courts have understood it, it provides a rule for determining who ends up with a tax refund where parties have not made a contract. What, What are the actual differences between these two sides then? The federal agency, the FDIC, on the side of the subsidiary, it's really saying that the Bob Richards rule only comes into play when there isn't a contract at all. And since there was a contract in this case, the Bob Richards rule never mattered. So it's not a live issue for the court to be addressing according to the facts of the case. And it's saying that the Bob Richards rule didn't really matter to the lower court's decision below. But the parent bankruptcy estate's side is saying that the rule was actually crucial to deciding the case. You know, it can point to the fact that the bankruptcy court at the first level of this case actually ruled in its favor. And that rule was turned around when it rose up to higher courts, including the Tenth Circuit, which cited the Bob Richards rule when it gave its opinion, uh, giving the tax refund to the subsidiary. So it's saying that the, the rule is really this thing about putting a thumb on the scale in favor of the subsidiary, and that's the issue the court should be addressing. This is getting very nuanced. So the subsidiary is saying that this rule only applies when there's no contract, and the parent company is saying This rule does apply when there's no clear agreement. Where did it seem the justices seemed to come out on all of this? You know, in watching the arguments, you kind of had to feel for the justices a little bit because (laughs) um, the parties are kind of disputing what the case is all about. And then the justices are supposed to issue a decision. Um, But they did give some indication about how they might rule in the case. Some of them seem to think that they should issue an opinion that at least makes clear that the version of the Bob Richards rule that the parent company's side was talking about in the case, where you put a thumb on the scale, is no good, that lower courts shouldn't be applying it, and that they should make it clear, since that's the reason they took the case to begin with. Justice Gorsuch was actually suggesting that. Previously, we heard him talk about how the court took the case to decide whether the Bob Richards rule was a thing. He went on to say that the court basically should say that it isn't a thing, and you should decide the case again without invoking the Bob Richards rule so we can see how the case would go in that situation. 
Here, you're going to hear him say that. We took this to decide the Bob Richards rule, whether it's a thing. And both sides seem to agree that it is not a thing, as understood by so many courts of appeals across the country. Why shouldn't we put a period at the end of saying, both sides agree, this is not a thing, go back and do it properly? Gorsuch is coming down really clearly that this Bob Richards rule should be thrown out completely. Were there any justices who came out on the other side? You know, none of the justices seem to actually defend the rule on legal grounds. But there did seem to be some suggestion that the court should hold off on deciding on the Bob Richards rule because the FDIC didn't end up really defending the rule. The FDIC said that the rule wasn't important to the case. They also brought up a different version of the rule. And the justices seemed, at least a few of them, concerned about the idea that the court would weigh in without having heard a real strong defense on the other side. Justice Ginsburg seemed to express that. Here she is saying that now. We have had no adversarial confrontation on on this issue, and we usually don't decide an abstract question disembodied from the case. It has to be an actual controversy between the parties. And so you, you, you present a question, the other side says, that's irrelevant to this case. We have no one on the other side defending the rule. This was actually kind of a strange part of the case. The whole case was taken on by the court in order to decide whether this rule was a real thing, as Justice Gorsuch put it, whether it's something that the lower courts should apply. But then you didn't have anyone defending it. And so it made it a little hard for the justices. And Justice Kagan actually brought up some frustration with the Solicitor General's office, the office that is representing the FDIC on the subsidiary side. She was actually the Solicitor General in a past life before she went on to the Supreme Court. She seemed kind of frustrated that the office didn't tell the court in advance that it wasn't going to defend the rule because then they could have appointed an outside lawyer to actually defend the rule. Here's Justice Kagan talking about that. If you had said to the court that you did not intend to defend Bob Richards, as everybody understands that rule, and if you had said to the court that you did not intend to state a position on the only question presented in the case, I don't exactly know what we would have done, but I would tell you that there's a pretty good probability that we would have thought that that was an appropriate place to appoint an amicus. So we just heard Kagan criticizing the Solicitor General's office for not giving the court any heads up about no one defending the rule because they would have brought someone in to do so. What does that all suggest about what happens with the tax refund that's at the heart of this case? You know, you can't know for sure, but it's possible the case will just get sent back down to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals to be decided again without reference to the Bob Richards rule. Because the court didn't really wade into the details themselves. The justices didn't examine the contract and really debate about what the contract would say if the Richards Bob Richards rule applied or didn't apply about who should get the tax refund. That seemed to suggest that they could just send it back for the lower court to uh, to address the issue again. That possibility was something that didn't seem to make the FDIC's attorney, Michael Houston, very happy. He had an exchange with Justice Kavanaugh where Kavanaugh was suggesting that the court might consider doing that, and he was insisting that the court shouldn't. Here's a clip of that exchange, starting with Justice Kavanaugh. 
it'll be easy enough for the Tenth Circuit to say that on remand to follow up on Justice Gorsuch's question if Bob Richards did not put a thumb on the scale in its analysis. So you will end up getting the the result you want from the Tenth Circuit if they truly did what you think they did. I think, Your Honor — But we don't know because they start out with this whole Bob Richards framework, and I don't think you can be sure. And what's the problem with doing, as Justice Gorsuch said, vacating, remanding? And they can do it without Bob Richards. I think you do know, Your Honor, and I think it would be strange. Well, if we do know, that it'll be simple then, won't it? It it would be strange for the court, I think, to vacate a decision and remand so that the Tenth Circuit can simply reinstate pages 18A to 27A. Well, they may or may not do that, though, knowing that Bob Richards does not, contrary to what they said in their opinion, provide the framework for the analysis. So here, Justice Kavanaugh is suggesting throwing out the Bob Richards rule and then passing the tax refund question back down to the Tenth Circuit. That's exactly right. He wants the court to make a statement saying that this rule is a bad rule and then finding out what the lower court would have done if we knew for certain that it wasn't applying the rule in the case. Were there any differing opinions from the other justices? Justice Sotomayor seemed to build on the idea from Justice Ginsburg that the court might express some hesitancy about addressing the Bob Richards rule. She suggested that the court might just issue an opinion saying you should look to the contract, you should apply state law on the contract, but stay out of saying anything broader about whether the Bob Richards rule is a good thing, a bad thing, a real thing. Just let it come up some other time when someone is actually defending it. Here she is in an exchange with Mitchell Reich, the lawyer for the parent side, saying that's what the court might consider doing. Do I write an opinion that says when you look to the contract, that's what you do, and you apply just general state agency debtor-creditor law? I think that's exactly what the opinion should say, Your Honor, and I just want to make a few points. Sam, uh, we don't need to reach Bob Richards is what I keep saying. But the, the, uh, a few points, Your Honor. First, I think the government's failure to defend Bob Richards can't be a reason not to reach that question. That's literally Why? the question presented. Usually we case. need adversarial testing before we reach questions that are not implicated by the issues before us. So, Aisha, this all seems really high level and messy for something that's born out of a fight over a tax refund. What do you think the justices' thinking will be as we approach an outcome to this case? I think the justices might end up actually making a decision on the Bob Richards rule. There was definitely suggestion that they might not, and you can see the arguments on the other side. They didn't have someone really defending it. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court takes only a tiny fraction of all the cases being asked to be heard by them. You know, it's a big deal when they take this case. Mm -hmm. And for them to decide not to answer the issue... Um, The whole reason that they decided this was a case worth taking is kind of lost resources by the court. So that might weigh in favor of them actually deciding that we need to address this and no one was defending it. So maybe that's a bad sign about the rule and maybe we can look into the issue on our own and come to a conclusion that really this wasn't developed in the kind of federal common law process uh, that judge made rules uh, developed through that is legitimate. So we should strike it down. Then again, we're always going to have to wait and see. Thanks so much for joining us today, Aisha. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you, Siri. That's all for this week. For more tax and accounting news, you can visit news.bloombergtax.com. And you can follow us at tax on Twitter. From Washington, I'm Siri Belusu. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. 
Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.